2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm privileged to be joined by the acclaimed science writer Harriet Washington. She's the author of best-selling prize-winning books about the politics of public health and American medicine in the past and present, and is here to talk about her latest. It's called A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind published in July by Little Brown Spark. Harriet Washington, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you. Thank you for having me.
2: Now, environmental questions have not been the chief concern of your published work up to this point. How did you come to write a book about environmental racism?
0: Well, I've always been fascinated by poisons, actually. Uh, In the 80s, I managed the Poison Control Center for a teaching hospital in upstate New York and was... um, it was quite the education, and I found it really interesting to understand the subtleties of poisoning, the things that were sometimes overlooked in the quest to keep patients alive, like long-term cognitive damage, things that tended not to emerge for a very long time, sometimes depending on the poison. So um, it's always been an interest of mine. And of course, when I wrote Infectious Madness, I focused on um, the power of pathogens to affect their cognition. So I've always been very keenly aware that there are things affecting our intelligence and cognition that were not the usual suspects. I then did an article to the American Scholar entitled The Well Curve in which I traced a lot of cognitive deficits in the developing world and the southern parts of our country to um, pathogens for um, neglected like tropical diseases, uh, a connection that is actually pretty strongly supported by evidence but not the way we tend to, you know, usually think of um risk factors or cognitive illness. So it actually was a very, you know, a very clear interest of mine that married to another very clear interest of mine, and that was um the the feebleness and yet the ubiquity of the hereditarian opinions about intelligence. Which um, you know, very political opinions that tie intelligence to race and make claims of inherent innate deficits in cognition in people of color. Um, I knew it was false. I've known it was false for a very long time, but I was really impressed by their ability to assemble evidence that was quite shaky and episodic (laughs) and be convincing. So, you know, I guess I've always been troubled on one level by the fact that our embrace of this hereditarian or even our reaction to hereditarians' um, theories has kind of occluded what should be our big concern, which is that if there are intellectual deficits among populations, how do we fix them? What do we do about them? You know, rather than using it as a political football, I thought it was really important to look at the roots, and that's how I came to this.
2: Thanks. And when it comes to several of the poisons that you examine in this book, like lead and mercury, um, we know and we've long known that they have adverse neurological effects Um, It it seems like the discourse around environmental racism tends to maybe more often emphasize physiological damage over cognitive damage. Um, You know, we think cancer clusters and we think asthma. Um, Why do you think that it's taken this long to get a book like yours?
0: Well, I think that a lot of the discourse around all types of toxicity tends to focus on physiological damage. And there are, you know, reasons for that. Some logical, some not so logical, but there's human nature. Um, (laughs) One expert named David Rall said that If thalidomide had caused a 10-point drop in IQ rather than profound birth defects, it should be on the market. It's not easy to tie cognitive defects to early exposures, especially to toxins. It's a very long arc. You know, an infant is exposed, maybe in utero, or maybe it's a young child, to a heavy metal or to a phthalate or PCB. And there's cognitive deficits that emerge when? 18 years, years old, you know, two decades later? It's not the easiest connection to make. And then, too, for a lot of um healthcare providers, sometimes they're focused on just maintaining the person's life. keeping them. I remember in the 80s, a lot of um the lead poisoning that I saw in emergency departments was dealing with just keeping people alive. You know, kid would eat a fingernail full of um, lead paint, and have, you know, systemic damage. Doctors, frankly, didn't have the luxury and didn't necessarily have the insight of that time to worry about his cognitive state 20 years later. So it's actually something that we do with poisons in general, look at the immediate after effect, which is right in front of us, and sometimes maybe miss the long-term damage It's more subtle, but just as devastating.
2: Yeah, and intelligence can be a hard thing to quantify, and in the book you rely a lot on IQ, and I suspect that the audience that's most receptive to arguments in this book are also maybe those who are most suspicious of IQ as a metric. Um, could you say a bit about IQ's value and its limitations?
0: Well, of course. I address those early on in the book. Yeah. I'm deeply suspicious of IQ. <laughs> However, and for good reason, it's not a reliable factor, but the real problem with IQ is it doesn't show what it's purported to show. Um, The problem is that we're told that IQ um, is a measurement of one's innate potential, cognitive potential. That's not what it is at all. IQ is actually a measure, a limited and flawed measure of one's achievements, you know, how literate one is, how well one handles numbers. These are things that are taught. And so um, that's part of the problem. It's presented as something that it's not. Also, the big problem, which I spell out early in the book, the big problem in regard to IQ is the tendency um, to establish a hierarchy by claiming that one can compare the IQs of, uh, say, wealthy whites in the West to um, very poor people in the global South, or wealthy people in Connecticut and their children to um, poor people exposed to a myriad of toxins in the or poorest parts of a city like Baltimore. The reality is those comparisons are meaningless. Um, Rick Lindsay and other scholars have pointed out that when you try to compare IQs between groups with very different, um, very different environmental exposures, very different educational opportunities, very different opportunities in, in general, and people who are assailed by a variety of toxins, pathogens, and deleterious, uh, factors, and people who are not, you end up with some impossible to sort out, um, mixture of exposure to opportunities, education. You don't end up with a difference in, I, of, of, in, of innate ability. And yet we treat IQ as if it were. Now when you treat IQ, um, when you, when you treat IQ in accordance to what we know it really signals, that's when it becomes a useful metric for my purposes. For narrow purposes, it can be used. So if you look at IQ as that measure of how well one has been able to um, integrate those aspects of intelligence that are important in a the culture, then that's something, as something meaningful. And that's how I use it. I don't use it as an innate you know, ability because it's not. So um, I think a lot of people, it's really important. To, um, we tend to have a very binary approach to this. And it has to do with the use of this argument politically. The thing about hereditarians is they build themselves as scientists, but every one of them has a very strong political agenda. They're trying to make a case for banning Hispanic immigration because Hispanics supposedly are less intelligent and more prone to crime. They're trying to make a case for um, not funding pre-K and nutrition programs because African-Americans are just innately unintelligent and better access to education and nutrition won't help. So that they have this really political agenda and that means that instead of looking at the data and making images, they have this very strict binary approach, you know, but that's not how doesn't describe a lot of science. We're not looking at binary issues here. We're looking at the fact that there are many things that affect intelligence, many pathogens and toxic um, things that affect intelligence. And um, it's just important to keep in mind the difference between facts that can be, um, you know, that can be challenged and proven and opinions. You know, these things that are tightly held because they represent a political mind view as opposed to a scientific approach.
2: You spend the most amount of attention in your book on lead, and for a couple of reasons, I think. It's because it's the most pervasive neurotoxin in the environment, I think, as you say at one point, and also because it's sort of paradigmatic of, of this nexus between environment, race, and the brain. Uh, could you sketch that out for us?
0: Well, I like to think that I give due attention to many other... For sure. <laughs> I mean, lead, of course, has captured the nation's consciousness. Yes. You know, which is a good thing. You know, we're very aware of its damage now. We're aware of its damage to the brain. And I do have a long chapter on lead, but I also talk about other heavy metals with similar effects, mercury, arsenic, and pathogens. And I talk about phthalates and PCP. So, you know, there's plenty. We have a wide variety of <laughs> things that are insulting our consciousness. We have plenty to choose from. Lead, of course, resonates with us because of highlighting what happened in Flint, and what happened in Flint, Michigan is really interesting in that it is um, uncannily familiar to me, having been very well aware of what has already happened in New York, Washington D.C., and in Baltimore. In Baltimore, I had actually been um, recruited by some lawyers to help them with lead poisoning cases, so I had a great deal of grateful what happened there and. The yeah, um trajectory is drearily familiar. Um, a toxic um substance disproportionately affects African Americans and Hispanics. And this is no accident. You know, industry is intentionally located in areas where um people of color live. I think oh, there, can, there are a lot of a lot of reasons why this is, but I think what's more important is to look at what happens and the effects. So they're disproportionately located there, and then, when people begin suffering ill effects um there's governmental inaction and indifference. Certainly, the industries react not with indifference but they react by demonizing the people who are complaining. there's a lot of blaming the victim going on here with lead it was a lead industry's um decision to cast lead poisoning as a problem of african American and hispanics, and then talk about the fact in their opinion, but they were following it as a fact, the fact that African-American Hispanics were not smart enough to protect their children from poisoning, were slovenly housekeepers whose homes were filled with lead dust because they were too lazy to clean. And that was followed by government workers who, in addressing lead problems in Baltimore, helpfully presented affected housewives with stick and span and showed them how to clean their homes. Uh, The problem was not their housekeeping. The problem was that the industry had aggressively marketed lead paint as being hygienic and safe. The problem was that the industry had decided to infuse fuels, um, automobile fuels, with extremely toxic tetraethyl lead rather than the ethanol, which would have been cheap and non-toxic. But they blamed the victims. So this goes on, blaming the victims. And not only industry... Which frankly, I have to admit I'm not really surprised at the fact that industry would lie about poisoning people, but the government would also participate. The government would also downplay poisoning or refuse to act as they did in Aniston. So, you know, lead is very symbolic for me because it's something that has affected every major city that I know of in America and a lot of minor ones I probably don't know about it. It's a very American problem. We're a nation of (sighs) friends.
2: One of the things in the literature that that always I find so striking is is the studies of its behavioral effects. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and and then I have a follow-up question.
0: Sure. Well, you know, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that not everything is studied. Yeah. And even for um, clarity's sake, I've had to approach this um, by looking at one toxic substance at a time. I'm discussing lead in one section, I'm discussing PCBs in another, I'm discussing phthalates in another. But the reality is people who are exposed to these heavily, African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, have been bombarded by an assortment of all of these at once, or a good many of them at once. We're not talking about individual poisonings. Um, So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind.
2: Yeah, and I was thinking of some of these studies that link you know, the link lead exposure really right down to the deciliter per you know, the, the microgram per deciliter with you know whatever truancy in schools or or you, know, you unpack the term you know those kind of things.
0: There are so many studies of behavioral, and this is actually something interesting to me because the cognitive effects are so devastating and so broad. Um, from a public health point of view, if you're looking at the um, if you're looking at the exposed person as a patient one would think a lot of the effects would be focusing on cognitive changes that destroy that person's quality of life let's not forget this person is the victim this person is a recipient of poisoning of very often but not always criminal activity this is a victim and yet very often you take these victims and by focusing on behavioral effects that can lead to criminality you turn them into the criminal, into the aggressor. Now, this doesn't mean that you can ignore the fact that it has profound behavioral effects. You know, some of them having to do with success in school, success in the job, and the damage wrought by lead is cumulative. If you're not exposed to a five-year-old or exposed to the 11-year-old, and that's the end of it. The damage accrues over time. With, you know, With time, you become less and less likely to be able to Um, complete your schoolwork and less and less likely to graduate, less and less likely to get a job and be able to hold it, you know, and have the, um, you know, composure necessary to succeed in the workplace. So it's devastating from that point of view. It also leads to criminal behavior. But um, again, as I've said, I think we have to be careful with that. Yes, we can't ignore it. We need to study it. But I don't think the focus should necessarily be on criminal behavior, and that's what's happened up to date. We have a lot more data about criminal behavior. Um, for example, um, if you look at the work of Kevin Drum, which I think is excellent, he wrote pieces in Mother Jones that very clearly show that um, criminal behavior in this country rises and falls with lead exposure. When um, lead was taken by law, when the law required that most lead be purged from gasoline, we saw concomitant drop in violence, a drop in the murder rate. When lead was um, was instilled into house paint and, and the lead industry widely promulgated the use of lead imbued house paint as more hygienic than wallpaper, there was a rise in the murder rate. There was a rise in criminal behavior. So um, it's really interesting what's happened here. We do see very extremely clear evidence that lead is directly tied to not only behavioral problems that can, you know, destroy a person's chance of success in life, but also criminality, which is a larger social problem. And again, I think it's really important, though, as we do this, to understand that on um, the talk of criminality, has, we have to be very c- careful, you know, not, again, to blame the victim, because these people are the victims of poisoning, sometimes illegal poisonings.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer, and it helps, it helps to clarify some thinking there. Um, I said earlier that, you know, one of the things the book does is remind us that how many of these pollutants in our landscapes are are known neurotoxins. The other thing it does is, at least for me, as a lay reader, is surprise us with how many things I did not think of. I thought it was pollution, but I didn't think it was being risks to the brain. Um, and a lot of it comes through air pollution, right? So the the hydrocarbons coming out of our vehicles can cause brain damage. Asthma itself can cause brain damage, you write. Um, could you say more about some of these surprising neurotoxins?
0: Sure. I mean, um... Air pollution is probably the chief vehicle of um, the kind of poisoning that causes profound cognitive effects. It's a very efficient way of getting a poison into the brain. Um, Take this one example, because there are many, many um, effluents in air pollution that cause cognitive problems. But take one example. Look at magnetite. Um, That's actually um, a metal that is magnetic, and what's interesting is it occurs in nature, I mean, you'll find it in our bodies and veins in extremely small quantities. But when they found now that a various assessments have found, I'm not sure this figure, I think it's almost 100 times, more magnetite in the body than naturally produced. And they can differentiate between the magnetite that our body naturally harbors and the magnetite that we breathe into air pollution because the magnetite that we breathe in the heat of industrial processes makes it spherical. It looks different. It's round. It's like a spear. And so you can tell the difference. And most of the magniton in the bodies of people who have been tested comes from air pollution. It actually travels through the nose as you breathe it in directly into the brain. And it wreaks a lot of havoc in the brain. Once it's there, you can't take it out. So again, we're talking about cumulative damage over the years the damage it causes doesn't stop, it increases. So um, magnetite is just one example. Asthma caused by air pollution is another. Um, asthma causes hypoxia. Um Bad asthma causes periods when you're literally not breathing, oxygen is not getting to the brain, and when you have repeated doubts of no oxygen getting to the brain, then you causes brain damage. And that happens to you over time. Say you're a child, Living in a building across from a New York City bus depot, and you're breathing this in 24/7. It's going to these hypoxic events are going to alone lower your cognition. And when you look at them in concert with the magnetite and other things that you're breathing in, to say nothing of the lead poisoning you might be experiencing, say nothing of the phthalates and PCBs you may be taking into food, um, then the cognitive damage is you know. Just guaranteed.
2: What might catch the most people by surprise in this book is the chapter on microbes um, and, and about infectious diseases for a couple of reasons. One, because we don't, we don't associate kind of new infectious diseases often with a big problem in the United States in general beyond, you know, the flu. And then also with, we don't often associate them with any sort of neurological risk. Um, and so, so how can we, how can exposure to infectious disease be the result of environmental racism? And what threat does that pose to our minds?
0: Uh-huh. A very dramatic one and you're right, it gets very little attention. I wrote a book entitled Infectious Madness in two thousand fifteen where I looked at the role of pathogens in mental diseases and disorders. And the interesting thing is that our technology has now advanced to the point that we're now able to quantify very small exposures and to understand their correlation and sometimes their excuse me and sometimes their um Uh, their driving of mental illness in a way that we couldn't before. We also now know that the kinds of proofs we used to rely upon to determine whether an infectious disease was present or not are really deeply flawed. They're not the things we can't really use anymore. So that postulates, for example, are still being used by a lot of researchers, although as I detail in the book, there are multiple flaws with them and they're really not reliable. So the bottom line is that we can now trace how exposures to pathogens are affecting our brain, but sometimes um, it happens in a myriad of ways. One way is direct. Some pathogens will directly injure your brain. For example, um, trichinosis, which we associate with eating pork and and being infected with small worms, hopefully small, maybe larger worms, um, in our bodies so we know of this issue right what people have not been aware of um late people have not been aware of for a very long time is the fact that in some situations when you are exposed to trichinosis um probably the classic way is that someone is handling infected pork does not wash their hands and then prepares and then you know prepares the food um, so in those cases the eggs um if ingested by a human, it will travel directly to the brain. In the brain, the eggs actually um, insist themselves, and you have the brains of people who have presented to emergency departments with a fainting spell or sudden epilepsy, and doctors find that their brains are studded with these small tapeworms, a horrible thought, but an even more horrible reality because they cause seizures, epilepsy, sometimes death, Depending on where they are in the brain, they can cause blindness. But many of them, of course, cause cognitive damage because they're literally devouring parts of your brain. It's like a science fiction movie, but it's real life. And this is not something rare. This is something that's becoming more and more common, especially in the southern part of our country where the climate is very hospitable to some of these pathogens. And there are many other pathogens as well. They used to be um, considered confined to the developing world with climate change exasperating um, a warming effect, we're finding more and more of them are moving north into our country. And now some of them are quite common in our country. So that's one really dramatic example. Another example is a little more subtle. Um, At the University of New Mexico, there are researchers um, under Randy Thornhill who have developed something called the um, parasite stress theory of... um, you know, brain damage. And it's really interesting. The parasite stress theory refers to the fact that a newborn child uses 87% of their metabolic energy just in building a brain. The brain is extremely complex and it's very detailed. Certain um, things have to happen at certain points. These developmental windows. On a certain day, a structure of the brain will be formed. On a certain day, neurons have to migrate. Sometimes a hundred times their length to get to the right part of the brain. The brain is exquisitely um, detailed and complex, and it has this exquisite vulnerability to anything that can interrupt this. So what happens is you have a child spending the vast majority of its um, energy building this brain and then they're infected by a parasite. Infection also takes a great deal of metabolic energy to fight off. A child cannot do both. So in fighting off the infection, the child no longer has reserves to build um, this complex um, functioning brain. The brain formation suffers, and there are deficits in the brain that might be profound, might be less profound, might be really dramatic, might be less dramatic, depending on structure has been impacted, but very often we don't see the effects of this brain damage until the child is older, of course. There's no way of you know, measuring in utero, um, But when the child becomes 18, 19, the final structure of the brain are formed, mm-hmm. that's when the damage sometimes emerge. It's really difficult, as I alluded earlier, to tie brain damage or behavioral um, aberrations that emerge at age 20. To something that happened to you when you were in the womb or when you were one year old. So it took it took a long time to understand that this was happening. And so these diseases, these pathogens are very, very dramatic. Um you know, brain thieves basically they will actually prevent the uh, functional brain from being formed. And um it's something that we haven't paid a great deal of attention to. I think partly because of diseases that most dramatically highlight that, have been the of the developing world until, um, you know, maybe the last three or four decades. And even so, we've only, I hate to use the term admitted, but it's the most appropriate term, we've only admitted that these are the, um, the same diseases only in the last decade or so. I mean, less than 10 years ago, I was still reading accounts where um, a doctor being told this patient had Chagas disease, for example, would say, that's impossible. That disease doesn't exist in the U.S. Well, yes, it does. It's quite prevalent in, you know, the southern parts of the U.S. So that's what's going on with infectious disease. They have versatile and very potent ways of deranging brain development leading to cognitive disorders.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. What do you say to somebody, a uh, uh, straw man who uh,
0: who would hear <laughs> about
2: uh, hear about worms in the brain, and you'd have you'd have his attention, or hear about air pollution and and be convinced? But then you know, then we use the word racism, and then the eyes roll, and he says, "Well, you know, we all breathe the same air, or germs can't see race, or these kind of things." What do you say to those people?
0: I say, look at the data, read the book. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> not <laughs> hard to find. You know, we like to think that we all grew the same era, but that's not true. And look at New York City. Um, in the what, 1970s, when I first looked into it, right before I began working at the Poison Center, the 1970s and 80s, nine out of ten bus depots in New York City were located in Harlem. One of those bus depots was across the street from the house from the apartment building where my aunt lived. In my aunt's building, when I would go there to visit, I note in the book that you know, some of my cousins, a lot of all my playmates seemed to have asthma. Of course they could not have all had asthma, you know, I'm sure that's recalled bias. But I could not remember I couldn't think of the name of one playmate um in that area who didn't have asthma. It was a very common disorder. And it took me a long time to connect it to the fact that, that bus depot was across the street. Um so Proving it might not be easy to do if you're looking at one child, but when you're looking at um, a large number and making a longitudinal study, then it's very easy to see. see. I think that one of the things that um, one of the challenges one faces is that people often will point out the difference between proof and a correlation. They'll say, well, just because more kids met building an asthma doesn't mean that the best people proved it. And they're right. They're right. But it's not just children in that building. When you're looking, make, looking at many, many studies showing the same effect, the power of those correlations um, becomes impossible to ignore. So if we're only that one study, but if when we look at all the bus depots in New York City and look at the number of kids with asthma and kids without asthma and track distance from the kids with highest... Um, um, highest concentration of asthma to those buildings, then you see multiple connections, multiple correlations, then you can't dismiss them as not being proof. Um, and proof is really interesting. can be very political. Um, very often people think of it, I mean, I understand why, as being a purely scientific problem, but when it comes to pollution, proof is also an industrial stance. Proof um Demanding higher and higher um, levels of proof is a very um, common industrial point when trying to protect themselves against accusations of poisoning. They'll say, okay, well, you've got this level of proof or all these correlations, but we need more. We need more. The problem is there's a point of diminishing returns beyond which it makes no sense to go for higher and higher uh, levels of proof while people are being poisoned. This is exactly what happened with lead poisoning. Um, industrial concerns kept demanding more and more proof that it was indeed lead harming people. At the same time, their now-exposed documents show that they knew from the beginning that lead was, lead was fiendishly toxic. But they're demanding more and more proof. Their scientists are demanding more and more proof. And meanwhile, we have millions of people being poisoned and losing millions of points like you. To poisoning, So it's really important to understand that industry scientists, you know, not only those who work for industry, but those who are being paid by industry, very often are invested in demanding more um, higher levels of proof, not as a scientific um, metric, but more as a, you know, industrial ploy, a corporate ploy. So it's really important to remember that, that there's a point of diminishing returns with proof.
2: You said earlier, we, we don't study everything. And the book makes clear there's there's so many studies out there that there's enough to act with, right? But if you were running the Harriet Washington Institute of Health and had deep coffers, what kind of work do you want to see?
0: I want to see more nationwide research. Um, there are every year NHANES publishes um, data, comprehensive data, supposedly, about health hazards and things that affect public health. And there are other sources too. But there are things... They don't look at. And what's interesting is these lacunae, where there isn't any research, are sometimes, you know, based on researchers' preconceptions about what exists. If you think about it, it's very unscientific, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't make a preconception about that's not there, I'm not going to look for it. You know, it's ridiculous. But that's exactly what happens. A really good illustration of that in this book was I um wanted to look at There's a phenomenon with mercury poisoning. Fish in waters where there's a lot of um, mercury can be very dangerous to eat. And mercury poisoning itself can be tricky because there are um, elemental mercury and organic mercury. Organic mercury is the worst type. Organic mercury is what people are deeply concerned about. If you eat too many fish with organic mercury, you could indeed end up with poisoning, and it could affect your cognition. We know that. But the tricky thing is that even the other type of mercury, elemental mercury, can be a problem because elemental mercury can be changed into organic mercury by bacteria that live in the water. So if this, these are waters that have the wrong type of bacteria, then um, even though it's elemental begin with, they're, they're changing it to the toxic form, and people can also be injured. And so, initially, this was not realized. And so, fish in area that had um, elemental mercury were you know, being dismissed as, oh, perfectly safe. They weren't perfectly safe. They're as bad as ones in elemental mercury. But further than that, we had guidelines telling people how much fish you could safely eat. And that's good. But there were things people weren't being told, which was that the larger fish are actually more toxic and the smaller ones, because the larger fish eat the smaller fish, and it's cumulative. So you have this additive effect, where the larger fish are more poisonous. Also, I found a lot of data, because I'm thinking to myself, well, I know there's a lot of subsistence fishing um, in African-American communities. My own father did it. You know, um, we lived in the city. We lived in the city in upstate New York, and my father and his friends actually got together and bought a boat and they would do a lot of fishing, bring the fish home, we would eat it. They also did a lot of hunting. And so um, I was really surprised to find no data on African-American and subsistence fishing. Not only my father and his friends, but um, I travel a lot. And in my travels in the country, one of the things I would often see would be people who um, may have been suburbanites, but often in urban areas too, fishing off piers, right? You go down, up and down the Hudson, you're going to find people fishing off piers. So, you know, these are people who live in the city who are fishing. And yet, according to the national data, there was not any indication that African-Americans, you know, engaged in this. There's data for um, Asian-Americans, right? But mm-hmm. not African-Americans. Even Hispanic Americans So I called an environmental uh, tax, uh, uh, toxicologist at Johns Hopkins. And she blithely told me, oh, African-Americans don't do that. I said, well, I think that's wrong. I know a lot who do, you know. Oh, no, no, no. And she said, look at the data. I said, well, it may not be in the data, but I'm pretty sure it happens in real life. And she said to me, never forget this. If it's not in the data, it doesn't exist. And I knew, you know, the thing is, I knew that. But, you know, it's something that drives my own work. I'm always very careful to collect not only data but data from uh orthodox sources because I know that no matter how good data is from elsewhere, it's not going to carry the same weight. But when she said that, I said, wow, I said that's amazing because that is indeed the thinking. And that's this, you know, belief that there is no data has led people not to look for it. But I knew it wasn't true. And I kept thinking, what am I going to do? I called um <clears throat> excuse me, I called um Doctor Bullard of the environmental justice movement, and he says to me, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I'm going to find this data. And I was looking everywhere. What I did find were smaller reports in parts of California and parts of New York, which showed that African-Americans do substance fishing more often, in some cases, than Asian-Americans even though they've been ignored and Asian Americans uh, practices have been well documented nationally. So I had to be content with that, you know, these regional reports. And, um, but I, the regional reports coupled with this anecdotal data I had just, I, I just believe this was happening, this was going on. And it was really telling to me that there were, um, no data on it. There wasn't any data showing it didn't happen. There's like no attention to it at all. So, okay, I put it in the book, I you know, qualified it saying these are regional data, but I believe they reflect national trends, et cetera. And then, I swear, like a few months before the book was published, finally, um, a government agency came out with a report not only showing that African-American businesses in fishing, but chiding early researchers for not having looked at it.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So I'm thinking that was great, that was validation, but yeah. in how many cases is data not being collected, or data not being collected, because researchers have decided that it doesn't exist?
2: Well, it's it's a dark thought, and and, and many environmental books really are are you know, pretty dark, right? There's 200 pages of darkness, and then maybe five pages of of a, of a hopeful epilogue. You give us 50 pages of hope of a sort. <laughs> you have you have essentially a survival manual for individuals, kind of to live in a risk society.
0: It was important, and I have to pre- I have to issue the caveat that. What individuals can do is limited. Right. It's really responsibility of the government. Industry, yes, you could say, but let's face it: industry has demonstrated, especially when it comes to environmental toxicity, they're in it for money. Okay, they're going to take the cheapest route. So we cannot rely on industry to do the right thing. If an industry does the right thing, that's great. But we would be foolish to expect them to do it um, just because we need them to do it. It's the government who should be monitoring them, providing oversight, punishing them, basically protecting us. We hire leaders, um, we we vote for leaders in order to protect us. And the Environmental Protection Agency is not protecting us. So um, it's really important until we can get them to pursue environmental sanity, it's important for people to know what they can do, there are things they can do to protect themselves, um, however, incompletely, and I thought it was really important to to provide that in the book because, frankly, I'm not seeing the information anywhere else you write. A lot mm-hmm. of books um, sort of rhyme the problem and a lot of hand-wringing. They just leave the reader hanging like, oh, what do I do? You know? And it's interesting because um, some reviewers have sended, you know have actually criticized me for including those chapters. They said, well, who are you writing this book for? At one point, it's like you're writing it for scholars, and policymakers, and it's only this um, how-to manual. Well, I'm writing it for people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, I you. Think it, but, you know, the thing is, there are things you, you can do, and um, <laughs> it's important to know what they are.
2: Do you want to share a couple that you, that you tell your friends?
0: Oh, there's so many, but here's the thing. Um, for air pollution, the best... The best um, palliative effects are very expensive. I would advise people to, if you live near, like if you're living in a building like my aunt's, across the street from Bus Depot, then you should keep your doors and windows shut and run your air conditioner as much as possible. That's expensive. But then I point out that there are a few and spotty programs um, to subsidize the expense of using air conditioning. People should look into them. Um, and then one thing, it's really a little troubling for me to write about this, but it's necessary. Because um, it's a little, it's kind of like a, it played into the old blame the victim dialogue in the past. One of the things that people can do in their own home environments is to minimize vermin. Uh, vermin are very potent transmitters of um, cognitive damage, and there has been very little attention paid to this in terms of what. Um, lay people read we just they just haven't been warned about this enough, for example, rice uh, mice and um rats carry soul virus. soul virus has been linked to hypertension, hypertension has been linked directly to cognitive decline. you know the um effects on the blood vessels for hypertension. we think of them often in terms of heart disease, totally understandably, but we can't forget they also affect the blood vessels of the brain. Mm. Lead, un, you know, increasing the chance of stroke and other events that could lower your cognition. So, um, these these vermin that carry um, high, you know, carry soul virus are basically transmitters of hypertension, and they, in my opinion, are po- are partly responsible for the high hypertension rate in Black and Hispanic communities. It's an under um, it's an under addressed cause. Um, so there's that, vermin, um, cockroach parts have evolved since the 1980s, have been shown to also exacerbate asthma, but so you've got cockroaches. So, you know, the problem is that fewer Hispanic and black people own their own homes. So it's harder to address things like that. But what I point out is that most, most cities um, have laws that make landlords responsible for maintaining a vermin-free environment and they should try to use that as leverage to get the landlord to call, to call in, you know, professional exterminator. So those are things people can do. Also, diet. Um, one of the largest vectors of um, dangerous toxic substances in child's diet is baby food. It's staggering mm-hmm. to think about that. But um, there are studies done every year, and one group of studies um, published by, I think, Consumer Reports, does um them every year and the point and they evaluate, they look at all these types of baby food including organic baby food and they find high rates of uh, pesticides in their stocks. why some of the pesticides they find there have been banned for 40 years but what happens is that these leach into the ground and then they appear in the vegetables that are used so you can make you know you can maintain the growth of the vegetables organically, but you can't do anything about what's already in the soil. So um, that's a very large root of poisoning. So of course, what are the solutions? I tell people about you know, reading labels, making their own baby food, perhaps canning your own food if you're willing to have the discipline to do it exactly right. If you do it wrong, then that's one of the largest sources of botulism, fatal food poisoning. Um, But canning food is one way of preserving food without using preservatives. And then I talk, I tell people the difference between preservatives that are dangerous and those who are acceptable in terms of safety. It's really tricky because, unfortunately, some things that are on the GRAS list, generally recognized as safe, will lull people into thinking, "Oh, it's safe. The government says it's GRAS." But some of these are linked to cancers and problems. So. You can't rely completely on the label, so I talk about those exceptions. Anyway, I try to go into a lot of detail about what individual people can do. In the next chapter, I try to give people a blueprint for organizing as a community and forcing the attention of government, since government has not been very good about um, attending to these issues on its own.
2: The book, again, is a terrible thing to waste, environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Its author is Harriet Washington. Harriet, thank you so much for your work and for your time today.
0: Thank you, Brian.